hello. Yes, so my name is Roger Bredderton. Uh, you can call me Roger or Dr. Bredderton or the doctor or whatnot. Well, that's about it, really, actually. Um, so you can call me all those things. And um, I'm delighted to be with you. I do feel like this has been built up a little bit too much. There's been a lot of stuff about, isn't Roger amazing? Uh, I would like to say that um, there have been several talks I've given that really have sucked. Um, so I'm hoping to go for somewhere between amazing and sucking today. Somewhere in between those two things uh, would be good. Um, and usually when I go to dinner parties, which since I had kids is about once every five years, um, people will say to me, Roger... Now, that's always asked me one question. The first question they ask me is, well, the first question they ask me is, are you married? Which I am, I'm afraid, ladies. Um, second question they will usually ask me is, um, what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Um, so I'm a, I'm a psychologist. So I'm a psychologist. There's lots of words that begin with psych. Psychologist, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, psychotherapist. And um, not to correct Anna, but just to say, I'm not a psychiatrist. So a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who's trained in dealing with mental health problems. I'm a clinical psychologist, which means that I'm trained in behavior, thoughts, emotions. In a sense, I'm kind of trained to find out what's the story behind both human problems and human successes. What, what's behind that? How do we make those things happen? What kind of techniques could we use to make those things get better? Uh, and I'm also a psych co-therapist, which means I'm one of those people who sort of strokes their chins and listens to people's problems. And that, that usually means that the, the third question I'm asked uh, at parties is, uh, are you analysing me? Uh, someone starts to look scared, they start to kind of decide, is my body language giving something away? Um, and over the years I've developed many comedy answers to that question, but my favourite one at the moment is, are you, am I analysing you? Hmm, that's an interesting question. <laughs> so, so today we're talking about um, building an emotionally healthy church. I have a particular ideological view of psychology, of that field of inquiry that's all about why do humans do what they do. Um, and let me explain to you where it comes from. That quite often in our culture we're scared of mental health problems. Every time there's a piece of research that's done where someone reads a case study and in one version of the case study it will say diabetes or maybe cancer. In another version of the case study it will say something like schizophrenia uh, or depression or eating disorders or something like that. And then they, they give these vignettes to different people and they try and decide which of these are you happy to be close to and what you discover is that generally speaking it's mental health problems that scare us the most. But there's something different about them compared to diabetes or cancer or some of those other things that are still horrible, but there's something about mental health problems that we kind of want to keep slightly at arm's length for some reason. And one theory would suggest that one of the reasons we're not that keen on mental health problems, and one of the reasons why no matter how much education we seem to put into it, that stigma still remains, is because no matter how well you're doing, the idea that there's people who have mental health problems, sometimes it might be you, sometimes it might be somebody else, exposes something about ourselves that we don't want to see. You know, you hang out with someone who's depressed and after a while it begins to expose that part of you that might be a bit depressive. Or you hang out with someone who's really panicking and scared and you start to wonder if the world might be a bit scarier than you thought it was. 
or you hang out with someone who's uh, schizophrenic and going through a psychotic episode and reality starts to look a bit different. You hang out with someone who's paranoid and after a while you start to get suspicious about the world too. But there's something about mental health problems that scares us a little bit. And so I have a particularly ideological view of psychology. And I view it like this. I say that psychology allows us to tell a story that humanises some of the most complex and difficult human problems that exist. It tells us a story that makes depression make sense, that makes psychosis make sense. And then what happens is, if those things make sense, if you can explain something a little bit, you can start to love it. You start to go, all right, I get it. It's difficult, it's hard, I I can see that person suffering, but I'm beginning to understand a little bit of it myself now. And then weirdly what happens when we start to understand some of those things, we begin to start to love that part of ourselves as well. In a sense, all of us hold a little bit of madness somewhere in us, and we're scared that sooner or later someone will tip us, or life will disrupt us in some way, we'll tip out and other people will see it, and we'll be ashamed, we'll be embarrassed. One of my biggest fears, I even had it coming here today, is that I'll stand in front of a group of people like this and suddenly inexplicably start crying. It hasn't happened. It's never happened to me. But I, it's, it's just one of those things. You just wonder, will something happen today that will freak me out in some way? And many of us kind of hold that kind of thing. So the way I'd like to use psychology today is to say that psychology helps us love. It helps us love the parts of ourselves we don't get and don't like. And it helps us have compassion on other people who we might find difficult or hard to accept as well. And that's the position I'm going to come from today. And when it comes to building an emotionally healthy church, the first thing I would say is that God can be found in all circumstances, even when we think he's absent. doesn't matter what kind of emotional state you're in. doesn't matter if you're panicking or you're fearful or you're obsessive or you're depressed. God still can be reached in some of those moments. Uh, for a while, um, I had a friend of mine in, uh, we call them connect groups in our church, small groups that we meet together in, and um, probably for obvious reasons, over the years, I've had many people with very, very severe mental health problems have come along to our connect group, um, and one of them was a really good mate of mine who I would call Jason. Uh, that's not his real name, by the way. Um, his real name is, no, I won't tell you what his real name is. So, so Jason would come along, and, and Jason was going through a really tough time. And he was very, very profoundly depressed, and it had gone on for quite a few months. And um, one week, uh, we were just praying for needs in the room. And of course, it's very obvious that Jason is depressed, and therefore maybe we should pray for him. Uh, Pray for God to lift some of his depression, give him a slightly better week, something like that. Uh, And we turned to Jason, and we're sort of moving towards him. And what I think to him looked like quite quite sinister sort of interaction. (laughs) He was slowly moving towards him, and he went, no. He went, what? He went, no. Don't want you to pray for me. I said, why? He said, because I know what's going to happen. You Christians. He was a Christian too, so I don't know why he was calling us that. You Christians. Um, you're going to pray for me. Then you're going to expect me to be healed. And then I have to smile and pretend that I'm better after you pray for me. Um, and then I'm going to feel even worse afterwards. Because then not only am I depressed, I'm a depressed person pretending to be happy. And if I don't pretend to be happy, you're not going to like me anymore. Like, man, this is complex. Uh, so he said, okay, Jason, um, we'd like to pray for you anyway. Uh, why don't you go next door, watch a bit of TV, and uh, we'll just pray for you while you're in the other room. And uh, when you come back, uh, make sure you're not smiling, um, because if you look happy, we might not recognise you. <laughs> anyway, uh, and he, because he, he, 
It sounds real, doesn't it? He's a good friend of mine, and we had, he had a brilliant sense of humour, so he could get away with saying things like that to me. Um, and so he goes in the other room, and we pray. We pray for Jason, we pray for peace to him, we pray joy for him, we pray that this black cloud that's been bothering him for years will lift and move. Um, and when he comes back into the room, um, it, you know, everything to all intents and purposes is the same. But within a few weeks, he's starting to move forward anyway. And to be honest, we don't know if that was prayer, if that's just the way depression comes, like clouds, like the weather that comes. And then suddenly, before you know it, it sweeps away again, and it was gone. The weird thing about this friend of mine called Jason is that whenever I felt down, Whenever, whenever I felt depressed or something had gone wrong or I'd failed in some way, I was feeling a bit ashamed of myself, he was always the person I wanted to talk to. So he was always the person I'd say, can we go to the pub and have a chat? And we'd go to the pub and we'd have a chat. And every time I would say, and I can't believe this happened, and I, I thought this would go really well, and it didn't, and I thought I'd get that job, and I just completely bombed in the interview. Jason had this incredible gift of compassion to me. And that's the other thing I would say about uh, if you're struggling with a mental health problem or you know people who are too, uh, think about what, what is that person as a gift? Where have they been that means that they actually have something they can contribute to and give to you that you may not recognise because sometimes it's fogged up with some of the problems that they're going with. I had another person uh, in my connect group um, who, who went through a really, really terrible um, psychotic episode. So she was at home, she thought she saw poison pouring out the walls. Um, she really uh, believed that um, her family were trying to kill her. Um, she used to see um, insects flying through the windows trying to attack her head. Um, and she was sent into a local psychiatric ward and she was locked up in there. Um, and um, she, she used to come to our connect group and she would um, sit down. And um, each week she'd come and she would change her name. So some, some weeks she'd say, my name's not Sue, it's James. And we'd have to call her James that week or she'd get really angry with us. Um, and um, she'd come to our place and she would eat absolutely everything in our house because for some reason she trusted that it wasn't poisoned, unlike her own home. So she'd eat all our cake and you know we didn't have a lot, so she'd be eating all kinds of rubbish really, but that's what she ate. But here's the weird thing, that whenever she prayed, the presence of God just arrived like you wouldn't believe. But if she prayed and she said, God, I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm in a hole, please God, just come and be here and be peaceful and be our healer, you would sense the presence of God move into the room. And I always got this sense that no matter what was going on, God was always with her in this profound, deep way. In fact, one of those nights, she'd, she'd just gone and it just felt like this whole presence of God was still lingering in the room. And as soon as she left, the phone rang um, and it was her psychiatric ward saying she'd escaped that night, didn't know where she was. And she, she'd escaped to come to Connect Group that night. So when, when we talk about an emotionally healthy church, I think we always have to talk, yes, we have to acknowledge those kind of problems, we have to talk about those, but we always have to talk in a context of hope. We always have to talk about these things in the belief that actually there's a better future for us. There are ways forward, but sometimes even a 1% shift in our emotional health can make a really, really big difference. Quite often we get stuck in the idea of, I must get completely better, I must be perfect, I must be well. The reality is very few of us ever get there, but actually sometimes a very, very small step forward can really help us. Let me tell you one more story before I get into the meat of things. Um, 
I, I worked in the NHS uh, for about 10 years or so, um, and I was working particularly with people who were chronically suicidal and self-harming. Uh, I did about 10,000 hours with people of that particular thing. Uh, but generally speaking, in the NHS, they tend to get a diagnosis, something like borderline personality disorder. That tends to be the label that's attached to them, whether they like it or not. And um, I, I was working with some of these people, and one of them was referred because um, she was absolutely certain she had cancer. So she'd keep saying, um, I've got cancer, I've got cancer. She'd go to her GP. Her GP would send her for an MRI scan. Uh, it would all be clean. She'd come back. Um, she, she'd be fine for two days. Then she'd believe she had cancer again, and etc. It would just go on and on and on. And so she came to see me because her GP was actually just fed up of her. Was fed up of her visiting. No matter how much information, no matter how much validation he put in her hand, she couldn't take the information in. So she sits with me, and for about six weeks, we basically talk about death. We talk about how frightened <coughs> she is about dying. How the fact that she's had all you know, the mental health problems she's had for so much of her life make her feel like she's wasted her life in some way. And uh, we talk a lot. We talk about meaning. We talk about God. She was quite an avowed atheist, so she wasn't particularly interested in a religious view of the world. And as, as a clinical psychologist, it's not my job to kind of push that. It's to try and understand where she's coming from. And, and she's kind of saying, you know, I don't believe in God, but I kind of really wish there was something that would just give me a sense that life is meaningful, that things are going to be okay, that I can get through this. And uh, so we sat talking about this um, on our um, final session. And um, she says, you know, something really weird has been happening this week. Um, I live out in the country, and um, I've been standing in the kitchen, and every now and then butterflies keep flying into my kitchen. And uh, I talked to my um, little boy, who's five, and said, isn't it weird these butterflies keep flying into our kitchen? And he said, you know what, mummy, I think they're angels come to tell you that everything's going to be okay. And she was like, oh, isn't that sweet? And um, it's literally, she just said that, and out of the corner of my eye, out the window, I just thought I saw something flickering or something. I turned out, and I looked out at the ivy outside my window, and it was literally, absolutely, totally covered in butterflies, like hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of them. Never seen it before, never seen it since, uh, never occurred, and they're just there in the sunlight, opening and closing their wings. Just this beautiful display, and by, by the afternoon they were gone. Um, and she and I just looked out the window and just looked at this mass and just didn't know what to say. And to be honest, I don't really know what that means. Was that God? Was it a coincidence? Was it um, a synchronicity, as Carl Jung would have called it? I don't know. But I know that, that what it meant to her was it meant that there's just a sign that there is some hope. There is something that can help us. There's some underlying reality that can come our way. So I want to talk about an emotionally healthy church? How do you build it? How do you work with it? Um, and, and what I'm trying to do, and it's a difficult call this, is I want to speak in such a way that means that I, it's just as relevant to people who are very jolly and never ever experience any kind of mental health problem in their life. That person, the one of you, that, that person. Uh, so it's relevant to you. Um, but then also, if you're really going through the mill at the moment, and things are tough, and you do feel a bit despairing and hopeless, that it, that it will work for you too. So I want to kind of hopefully talk that it kind of works across that way. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about five practices 
for emotional health. I could talk about so many more, but I want to just talk about five key practices. They are both psychologically valid, so I could talk about the, the psychological research behind them, about why I'm recommending to them. They're also biblically recommended as well. So whether we went to the Bible, whether we went to psychology, we would find that these five things are being recommended from both places. So I'm going to talk about five practices for the emotionally healthy church. But just before I get there, let me just say something about emotions. Something that, that probably is a bit counterintuitive, by, by which I mean it wouldn't necessarily strike you as obvious to begin with. Um, it is that from a psychological point of view, in reality, there are no real positive or negative emotions. So every emotion you have is always trying to do something for you. So every emotion we have, our emotions are kind of like our alarm bells that are telling us what's going on in our environment and what we should do with it and how we should respond and how our relationships are doing and how we're doing it ourselves. That's what our emotions tell us. And we tend to divide them into negative and positive um, because some emotions like sadness and anger and fear and shame come with what we would call action tendencies. They make us want to do something. So if you're sad... You want to retreat and you want to hide. If you're scared, you want to run away. If you're angry, you want to fight. If you're ashamed, you want to conceal your face and hide. If you're guilty, you want to try and make things right in some way. They're negative emotions. We call them negative emotions because they always have like a knee-jerk response attached to them. If I feel this, I must do that. That's, that's the way they feel. Uh, that's why um, if you're in the workplace, some managers are very tempted to use negative emotions as the most reliable way of managing people. Because they know that if you make you feel scared, or a bit guilty, or a bit sad, it will boing, you know, fire you off into a course of action. Um, so it's a very kind of mechanistic way of managing people. It doesn't ultimately work long term. So they're, they're what we call negative emotion, action tendencies attached. Positive emotions like joy, serenity, curiosity, gratitude, hope, you might not usually call some of those emotions, but they are. Positive emotions like that don't have those action tendencies attached to them. So they don't immediately mean, I've got to do that. In fact, they do two things for us. Firstly, they broaden who we are. So when you feel joyful, or you feel curious, or you feel serene and peaceful, your perspective on the world opens out, broadens out. You, you explore things a little bit more. You look around a bit more. You take in more information. You're more interested in the world, uh, and you kind of want to stroll around. You feel free when you have a positive emotion like that. So, so they, they broaden our perspective, but our positive emotions also uh, build our resilience. This is why positive emotions are so, so important, is because spending time feeling joyful, serene, you have to look out for feelings like peace, for example, because sometimes people think, like, I feel bad, but actually you don't, don't feel very much, you just feel I'm peace, I'm fine. So feeling fine is kind of like a positive emotion in itself, and they build our resilience. So some people are depressed not because too many bad things have happened to them. They're depressed because not enough good things have happened to them. And some, things are, are, some people are, are depressed not because um, you know, the world has been an absolutely terrible place, but because one particular thing that really mattered to them fell apart. Psychologists call they had some kind of loss from their personal domain. And so positive feelings, they broaden our perspective, and they build up who we are. That's what they do. And so 
Positive emotions do that. Negative emotions have these knee-jerk responses. So negative emotions generally want an immediate response. And here's where the problem lies, is that sometimes a short-term negative emotion that was supposed to get us out of danger or get us to hide for a moment or, or get us to find some comfort for a second becomes our long-term state. So one of my favourite definitions of depression, for example, would be sadness that cannot be comforted. Sometimes what's, what depression feels like. Now, if, if it's normal sadness, you go to bed, you watch a Disney movie, get over it. That's it, that's normal sadness. It's not clinical, it's not a problem, that's being sad. Um, whereas depression is, no matter how, no matter what I do, no matter who compliments me, no matter how I try and comfort myself, I just don't feel better, it doesn't touch me. In fact, many depressed people would say, I don't feel sad. They'll say, I feel nothing, or I feel lost, or I feel empty, or I feel numb. Uh, one of my clients once described his depression as he says, it's like a huge bell jar has come down over my head and the whole world can't get to me and I can't get to it. It's just like I'm shut in this prison like that. And some people, the same thing happens with panic. So panic really is designed to be, is there someone who can help me? Grab them quick, they can help me, but there's no one there to help. So panic and panic. Uh, anxiety is the same. So a lot of us are living in our workplaces with the kind of anxiety that's really designed to help us take out a lion when it walks in the room. And instead, because of deadlines, we're living under that all the time. We're not designed really to be that anxious all that time, to feel that stress. And so that's when it becomes a problem. So something that was designed for a short-term solution becomes a long-term issue for us. And believe it or not, for some people it's excitement they get stuck in. So if you've ever had a, a, a manic episode or um, you've um, struggled with bipolar disorder in some way with manic on one end, the, the, the kind of the really manic crazy end of uh, what used to be called um, manic depression, bipolar disorder, that kind of really, really difficult, manic, crazy excitement side, is when people get stuck in excitement for whatever reason. could be biological, could be something to do with the life they've been through. Sometimes there's some trauma before it. But, but they just start, you know, everything strikes them as exciting and needing to be done immediately. So they max out their credit cards um, and they go door-to-door selling... I met someone who went door-to-door selling goldfish that they believe would never die. So they believe so someone else waiting at the airport for Hugh Grant to go and meet them for their date, um, etc. Um, so just getting over, over excited and that point they get stuck in those kind of things. And the thing about emotion is that when people start to get better from those things, and this, this is weird, is that when you study people in therapy and they're starting to move out of depression or they're starting to move away from mania or they're starting to move away from anxiety, um, you'd expect that, they would, that their kind of negative emotion would go down and their positive emotion would go up. But actually that isn't what happens. What happens is that their negative emotion remains pretty much as it is and gradually, bit by bit, by bit, by bit, by bit, by bit, by bit, their experience of positive emotion starts to go up. So they have a moment of joy, or five minutes of serenity, or a moment where they can just take pleasure in their children for a second, or a situation where they thought they would get enraged, and for some reason they don't. And then it's gone again. And so today, the approach I'd like to take is rather than us, I have to say, when I'm at university, I speak for about 50 hours on psychological problems. Um, so when they said uh, you can't have coffee till five, what they meant was 
five o'clock on Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> coffee till then. Um, so, so we could talk about in detail lots and lots of psychological problems in the Q and A. If you want to talk about those later, that's great. Um, but but uh, what I'd like to do, instead of talking through all the detailed problems, because there's just too many of them to get through, is I would like to talk through five approaches that we know help you to begin to use and build some positive, resilient emotions. So even if you're quite profoundly depressed, or you're quite anxious, or you're struggling through some difficulties, there just might be, every now and then, a moment, 30 seconds, 5 minutes, where you can just turn your mind in a slightly different direction, and then it's gone, and nobody needs to know that that happened. No one needs to put any expectations on you that now you have to be perfect. It could be there. And similarly, if you're the kind of person who you're currently not, as far as you're aware, struggling with a psychological problem, that's great too. Um, you can use these things just to build your resilience, build your sense of being built up as a person. So here we go. Five practices for an emotionally uh, healthy church. Um, and let me tell you how to listen to them. Because the problem is, I was going to do 12 of them. That would have been long. Um, and the other problem is that if I go, here's the five practices, you might think, oh no, I've already got enough to do. Now I've got five more flipping things to do from that guy who came to our church. And everyone said he was going to be brilliant. And actually did one of those talks that sucked. And now I've got five things to do as well. It's not fair. Um, so what I'd like to do is for you what I'm about to show you as a menu. Choose one of them. Choose one of them if you want to. So I'm going to talk you through them. The practices will appear up on the screen. And um, by the time we're finished, um, you can choose one that you think might work for you. Or if it's the kind of restaurant that just isn't your taste, you're more of an Italian kind of person, you can go, right now, none of those will work for me. But there's two theories behind it. One is um, something that I would call community psychology. And community psychology is the idea that rather than dealing with the outcomes of psychological problems, why not actually deal with the entire community of people? That if you're depressed, it might actually help you if there's a few more people around you who understood what that was like. Or if you're someone who's facing some real stress at work, if you can practice some of these things, it could be that actually you avoid falling into some of those difficulties that could come your way. And community psychology basically is the weird idea that by talking to a group of people like this, um, we can actually spread psychological wisdom much more quicker. Than, much more quicker, that's not good grammar. Spreading wisdom, but not good English. Um, so we, we can spread that kind of wisdom really, really broadly. And what that means is that you can hold it and you can decide what you want to do with it and how you can use it. And that works much quicker than if I saw each of you with psychological problems for an hour each. So let's see how we go. The, the other thing I, I'd like to say as well is that this is something that's sometimes called positive psychology. So rather than focusing on what's wrong, what doesn't work, which isn't wrong, that, that would be good. I've spent a lot of my years doing that. We can also focus on what works. So what, what, what could you do next? What, what would actually make you feel happy? What would lead to a bit more thriving and resilience? How could we do that? Now I must confess, in my introduction I had loads of Bible verses that I didn't read. So I'm going to try and get more biblical as I go along uh, with this now. Um, I've spent a, a long time kind of weaving together biblical material and psychological theory, and I haven't really shown that very well so far. First way into emotional health. An emotionally healthy church appreciates what it is. Appreciates what it is, or more accurately, an emotionally healthy church appreciates what 
is. Gratitude as a practice has now been researched for about the last 20 years or so, and it's probably one of the most reliable ways of increasing our sense of well-being. It's also been used quite extensively as an intervention for depression. So getting depressed people literally just at the end of the day to write down three things that they found good that day can actually give them a bit more flexibility moving forward a little bit. So gratitude has got this kind of really deep research basis for it. And when we're grateful, when we're thankful, we take things as granted, not for granted. We take them as granted, not for granted. What that means is that when you're grateful, you look at what you have and you enjoy it. One of the biggest problems we have as human beings is something that people call the hedonic treadmill. We call it the happiness treadmill. It's the the idea of um, we're always chasing things that might make us happy because we think they're going to make us more happy than they actually do. So lots of people want to win the lottery because they think when they win the lottery, they'll spend the whole time thinking about how wonderful it was that they won the lottery. And yet what we know, within about two weeks of winning the lottery, most people's emotional well-being is right back where they saw it. And we do this all the time. Advertising is based on it. Advertising is constantly telling you, if you buy these power tools, you will be manly and bothered like the guys in the outfit. If you eat this cereal, you will be slim and sophisticated like the woman in the bathing suit when she went past. They're constantly telling us that basically we just need something else. I just need something else to make me happy. Whereas what gratitude says is gratitude says try and focus on what you have. Start to look around at some of even the most basic things that are going on in your life. And this is absolutely central to the New Testament. Throughout the Bible, gratitude and thankfulness are talked about a great deal. Keeping in mind that gratitude, we usually talk about being grateful for. So gratitude is a sort of Gladness that occurs when something good happens, whereas we tend to be thankful too. So thankful, thankfulness is the sort of behaviour that leads to thanking God or thanking a person who's brought something our way. Um, so when you look in the Bible, gratitude is absolutely key, particularly to the ministry of Jesus. So you've probably heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus takes three loaves and a cup of fish. And somehow he manages to feed over 5,000 people with it. And all he does is give thanks. Thanks God for the fish. And suddenly they feed an entire multitude of people. There's also um, a moment in the Bible similarly um, in the Last Supper. It's the last time that Jesus is going to have a proper meal with his disciples before he goes off to be tortured and die. Um, Again, he breaks the bread and he gives thanks. And it's that moment where Jesus is really saying, what I'm doing is enough for everybody. It can be shared. It may look like one small thing, but actually it's going to go out and it's going to help a lot of people. This is the sign of God's love. It's the moment where sin and guilt and shame can be taken off us, and there's going to be enough here for everyone. And that's what gratitude does. Gratitude effectively takes quite small things that we might miss, we might not spot, and it inflates them and it multiplies them, and it allows us to enjoy them and see them more. And if you're ever reading through the letters of the Apostle Paul, one of the things you will see there is that his letters are stuffed full of gratitude. Thankfulness for this, thankfulness for that, this person, I remember that person, I'm really thankful, I'm glad that this happened. Blah, 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 goes on and on and on. And um, if you're reading the New Testament, the Apostle Paul over 50 times gives thanks for something, someone, or tells people, you should give thanks, over and over again. And then when you read all the other letters in the New Testament, 
the word thanks appears zero times. So Paul's understanding of grace is that we, we get the grace of God when we give thanks for things. We get the goodness of God when we give thanks for things. And this is a central concept in psychological well-being. So the, the most famous experiment done on this was done in 2003. And it was done in California. It was done by a guy called Bob Emmons. Bob Emmons is now the world expert on gratitude research. He is also a Christian where he keeps it quite quiet. And um, Bob, Bob Emmons actually didn't want to do research on gratitude. He'd been given, given it by somebody else, and he actually wanted to do some work on humility, but he was saying, no, you've got to do gratitude. So a bit reluctantly, he was like, oh, okay, I'll do some work on gratitude then. So he goes back to his university, finds a bunch of his students, and he says, okay, all I want you to do for the next 21 days is, uh, once a day, I want you to write down three things you are thankful or grateful for. That's it. Off you go. And he wasn't really expecting very much to happen because he wanted to be doing some other piece of research. And when his results came back, he was absolutely totally amazed at what he found. Um, they, they were happier. Their health was better. They were doing more physical exercise. People in the gratitude uh, condition uh, were showing better cardiovascular functioning. Their immune systems were functioning better. He absolutely couldn't believe what he found. And that moment then, it was just one of those moments where someone does one bit of research and then the rest of people like me all jumped on the bandwagon and did it again. In fact, I did exactly the same piece of research in Lincoln University last year and got the same results. Uh, just getting people simply to write down three things that they're happy about that day um, led to some incredible changes in their well-being. Another way of practicing gratitude as well is to, is to do a gratitude visit. Ever, ever um, thought about people who have really contributed a lot to you but you've never had a chance to thank them. I think about Mrs. Akers, my drama teacher, when I was um, age 12. Um, or I think about uh, Mrs. Rowe, who was my English teacher when I was 17. And they both had a really, really massive impact on me in a period of my life where I didn't like myself particularly great deal, wasn't particularly confident. They were two people who really believed in me. And um, they're the kind of people where maybe you can write them a letter. Maybe just in your head you can say, I'm really thankful that those people crossed my path at that point in time. The other thing that gratitude can do as well is that it can transform some of the most tragic moments of our lives. So one way of practicing gratitude, if you're a little bit like me and you're a little bit entitled, and to be honest, there are some days where the last thing I want to do is express gratitude about anything. I don't feel that today. One way of doing it is to think about when, when were things worse than they were today? And what's slightly better now than back then? I had a really powerful experience of gratitude um, over the summer. Um, my brother-in-law, sadly, uh, in July, died of cancer. He was in his early 30s. And um, we knew it had been coming. We'd been waiting for it for about a year. And um, the whole family gathered by his bedside basically for two weeks, waiting for the moment to come when he finally died. And uh, myself and my wife have been through that kind of thing before, so we knew that you know, things weren't going to get easy towards the end, and we knew that probably in the last few days he wouldn't be able to communicate with us. The uh, cancer would take over, the drugs would take hold, and he wouldn't be able to get through to us at all. And so thankfully my wife was able to have a conversation with him in which she said, Niall, um, we think probably in the last few days of all this you won't be able to communicate with us anymore but you'll be able to hear what we're saying. What would you like us to do? 
And he said, had a think about it, named a few songs he'd like them to play. Uh, and he said, but more than anything, I'd like you to say good things about me. And so uh, 48 hours before he died, sh- sure enough, he was pretty much in a coma, really. We couldn't speak to him anymore. Occasionally he could grunt or lift an eyebrow to let, let us know if he could still hear us, but generally he couldn't communicate at all. And uh, my wife had sat down, she'd written two sides of A4 of effectively a gratitude letter to it. It just said, I'm really grateful for this, I remember that, I really loved the time you did that surfing, your sense of humour was hilarious. And she sat by his bedside uh, and just read it to him. Just read through this whole thing. And literally, she got to, the moment she got to the end of it, he kind of breathed his last and died. It's like this absolutely deeply traumatic, difficult moment. And yet somehow, attitudes like gratitude can even transform us even when we're at our worst. And I know particularly, even if you're in a a state of depression or anxiety at the moment, and the last thing on earth you want to do is feel coerced in some way to start looking around for positive things, and it feels like someone's telling you to be like Unikitty of the Lego movie and be all happy when it's the last thing you want. I would nevertheless suggest that maybe you should just think about it. Maybe if you just have a moment where that happens, 30 seconds where you think... Something good got to me just for a moment, and I'm grateful for that. That's it. No more, no more to it than just that. So that's the first exercise. Gratitude. Three times a week, write down what three things you were glad about in the last 24 hours. So you stop at the end of the day and you just write down three things like that. I now have 15 minutes to get through the next four. Okay. Uh, Let's do them quickly, shall we? Um, okay, so hope. An emotionally healthy church believes it can reach its better self. Hope is the belief that you can get there from here. That it may feel like your life's going nowhere, that you're stuck, that nothing can go on, but hope is that belief that you can get there from here. And when Paul in to the Colossians writes about hope, he says this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to you, Um, the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory in other words what Paul is saying is that quite often we get stuck and we think this is all I am I'm never going to be any better I've gone round in circles so many times I always end up saying stupid stuff I always end up hitting the same habits the same thought patterns the same criticisms it all goes on and yet Paul says actually glory a glorious life a life that feels a bit more fulfilled and more flourishing and has the life of God in it and all that kind of stuff. He says that hope, Jesus is that hope. Jesus is the hope that we can have that glory. So for Paul, hope isn't just a possibility. Uh, I once saw um, a profoundly depressed man who for one reason or another decided that he didn't want to carry on in therapy anymore. And as he was going out the door, I said, but how are you going to carry on living from now on? Because I was worried he, he wasn't going to be around if he still felt the same way. And he said to me, well, there's always hope, isn't there? And he said it in a very sort of sarcastic, he was quite a sarcastic, cynical kind of guy, but he said it in that, that kind of thing. And um, he didn't really mean hope, he just meant there's just a possibility that maybe somehow in some way this could happen. And that, that's not really hope, that's kind of just like, well, something might happen. And sometimes actually in depression, that's what you need. 
the number of times I, I've spoken to people who are depressed where it looks like there's no way forward, nothing's ever going to happen, nothing's ever going to improve, no things will ever happen, and then we sit down and we pray together, and then that week, weirdly, something occurs that knocks them out of the depression. We didn't expect it when we prayed, none of us had hope that that would occur, and yet suddenly, somehow, from somewhere, something arrives and changes everything. Um, I, I had a similar experience for, for years, actually. I, I myself uh, was quite depressed um, and um, would, would dodge in and out of it. I used to call it my black bubble. It just used to land on me, and when it landed on me, I couldn't see my way out, and I felt quite suicidal and all things were quite difficult. And so being the psychologist that I am, I treated myself through. Um, I literally went through every book on depression I could find, and I used every technique I could use to try and shift out of that mindset. Um, and it worked pretty well. So I had various points where I think I feel so much better than I used to. This is going really well. Um, and then one night just before church, I was sitting in the garden and I was writing in my journal and I felt that familiar black, black bubble just land on me again. I was like, not this again. I thought I'd beaten it. I thought I'd got beyond it. I thought this wasn't happening anymore. And I just cried out to God. I said, God, when will I be free of this thing? I went to church that night, and uh, someone was speaking, and they gave one of those really, really universal appeals. You know, when like a preacher wants lots of people to come forward, they just like give a really, really open appeal that anybody could possibly respond to. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, if you're breathing tonight, please, please come to the front. And um, so I was sat there thinking, there's no way I'm going to the front for this one. You've got to be joking. Right? It's beyond my dignity to respond to an appeal. That's not, that's not general. Um, and yet I just really felt God prompting me and saying, actually, I think you really should go forward tonight. So I was like, okay, when started to win the forward. And literally, before I got anywhere near the front, um, it was like a current of electricity went through my body and I fell to the floor just twitching. And, and if I'm honest, at the time, the thought that was going through my head was, oh, so this, this is what it's like to have an epileptic fit. <laughs> I've always, I, I, honestly, that's really what I thought was happening. Um, and as I was lying there twitching away, um, I just felt whatever that weight was, whatever that black bubble was, just lift off me um, and go away. And since then, if I want to revisit that dark place, I can. And sometimes there's a temptation to go back there. But for some reason, it just kind of drew a line in the sand that said, I'm not going to go there anymore. That's, that's not me anymore. And the reason I tell that story is because sometimes if you're stuck in the middle of all that kind of thing... Hope sometimes isn't just about believing you can get there. It's not just about believing I can find a way through. There's something about hope that includes waiting. Having the power to say, God, I want this to be different. What would it be like if you just prayed, God, I can see these problems, I can see this area of my life, and I want it to go. And I really don't have any faith that you're going to do it now. But if there's some way that it could lift off me and be gone, that's my prayer. And you give it to God, and you leave it there. And sometimes hope is about waiting in that way. So, hope as an exercise might be something like this. Consider a current obstacle, hindrance or frustration, then use your imagination to consider how it may be overcome. Just for a moment, imagine what life would be like if, by, in some weird way, that was miraculously healed. But there's no way, you know, there's no connection between your current problem and that future, you can't imagine at all how you would ever get there. But just for a moment, imagine what that would be like. Hope. Third, 
Third practice is endurance. Let me tell you this one uh, quickly. I'll try and be quick on these ones. Um, endurance is the art of suffering usefully. It's asking, what am I gaining or learning from my current pain? This is an actual an area of research that I did a great deal in myself. It's called post-traumatic growth. Um, I interviewed hundreds of people about how they grew through traumatic things that they went through, how they became wiser, how they became more compassionate, how they learned courage, how they became more vulnerable, how they forged deeper connections with people because they went through difficult situations. And I started on all that piece of research because I was writing a commentary on James, the epistle at that time, in which he said right at the start, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness um, will have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I didn't think mobile phones still made that nonsense. Incredible. Um, So I read that verse, and it just seemed so wrong to me that we should consider it joy when we suffer, that I thought, well, I better go and do some research. And (laughs) I was wrong. So um, that's the way it worked. Um, So we're not saved from our sufferings, we're saved in them. We can receive wisdom, compassion, connection, courage, vulnerability, depths of self. Here's the exercise. If you want to develop endurance in the face of suffering, pain, guilt, failure or sin, ask the question, what are you learning? What's the diamond in the sack of coal you suddenly feel shutting? How do you find that grain of gold in something that just seems like a load of old rubbish? Fourth pathway for Emotional health would be forgiveness. And I'm going to talk, I have to talk about forgiveness quickly. Let me just put a few provisors in. That. I have to say, no one can ever force you to forgive. So don't hear this as me saying, that really horrible person who, at the moment, you'd rather beat to death with your bare hands, and now I'm to forgive. That's not what I'm saying right now. You can be invited to forgive, and the moment that forgiveness becomes relevant to you is the moment at which you begin to realise that your anger and some of your desire to retaliation, for retaliation is causing you more pain than good. That moment when you begin to realise that this short-term emotion of anger that was right at the time um, has kind of worn out its welcome. It's not helping me anymore. As uh, Rick Warren once said, he said, unforgiveness is like allowing someone to live rent-free in your head. Forgiveness is about letting it go. It's not necessarily about trusting or reconciling to people. There are people I've forgiven who I would never allow my wife or my kids to be alone with um, and who I still don't trust, but nevertheless, I've still forgiven them. I've let the anger go. So the forgiveness uh, piece uh, is very, very highly related to well-being. People who forgive uh, live longer. They report less stress. Uh, They report less depression. And so the question for that one is, I would say, if there's a big person you need to forgive and it's too hard, don't worry about that right now. Think about something more trivial. Who has offended you lately who you could let go by seeing them as bigger than the offence? What I mean is, imagine that person who's annoyed you, offended you, violated you, done something terrible to you, and imagine them in a situation that's completely different from the situation of offence. And begin to wonder if... If you can see them somewhere else where perhaps they do well, or perhaps they're okay, or perhaps it's not related to the pain that you went through, can you begin to let go some of your hostility? Keep in mind, I make that an invitation. It's not a command, but forgiveness does help us. 
And the fifth route to emotional health is kindness. An emotionally healthy church finds enjoyment in giving to other people. Um, So kindness is love in action, sometimes called compassion. Um, It involves decentering ourselves and overcoming self-consciousness. Weirdly in the Bible, um, there's a saying by Jesus that never appears in the Gospels. We find it uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. Paul says that Jesus says this, so we can trust him that Jesus must have said it. Uh, In Acts chapter 20, he says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. What we know about people who give and care, who volunteer, is that they're happier, that they live longer, that they make deeper connections with other people. There's even kind of crazy studies where um, in an old people's home they give old people plant pots to look after with plants. And and, um, to one group their their plant is looked after for them and for another group they're told you have to look after this plant. And the ones who look after the plants live longer than the ones who have the plants looked after for them. Um, There's there's all kinds of research done on uh, people who do volunteering living longer and being less stressed. Um, teenagers who volunteer and find themselves in the process of helping others in some way. Um, so, if you're going to do kindness, the best way to do kindness is to do it in a fully orbed way. Sometimes we don't like kindness because we see it as a command. You just have to do this. It's just a behaviour. But if you want to do kindness fully, what you actually have to do is you have to imagine where do you want to give this thing? Who would it be to? Why would they need it? It has to have a bit of planning and imagination because that's the fun bit. Then you do it and then you have to savour it. You have to enjoy the fact that you've given. Some Christians go, oh, that's terrible, that would be pride. No, it's actually just enjoying that actually we are designed to be social creatures. And when we give to others, we really, really feel the effect of it. So, most psychologists would say, if you're going to do that, choose a day of the week and make that your kindness day. Some people say, Friday is my kindness day where I I do something kind for somebody. So if that one uh, appeals to you, um, exercise on this one is kindness. If you're going to have a kindness day, who would you target when and what would you do? I quite often do this with my colleagues at work, a little bit of chocolate on the desk. Um, Or I I realise that there's something they're looking for or want, and I try and find that. So let me pull it all together. So the worship band might want to come up just to help us finish off fire. Finish it off here. So basically, I have sandblasted you with a whole pile of information. It's scientifically valid. We know that this increases our well-being. It increases well-being across community of people. It's biblically valid. All the things I've talked about are there in the Bible, saying this is how we should live. This is what helps us live well. But the worst way to hear what I'm saying is as a to-do list. So the worst way to hear all this is to hear it as, here you go, here's a list of more things to do. You already feel a bit rubbish, so let me make you feel even worse by adding a whole pile of other things to do. I don't want you to hear it like that. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think about it this way. If you were to strip off some of the things that bother you at the moment, if you had a moment when you weren't comparing yourself, to other people, or didn't feel yourself to be worthless, or weren't scared, or um, weren't feeling angry, or didn't feel so stressed, if you just had a calm moment, in that moment, which of these would most appeal to you as something to have a go at, 
as something to do. In a sense, I'd even go so far as to say, I, I'm not really adding anything to you today. I'm not asking you to do anything more. All I'm, all I'm asking is that if some of those things were stripped off, which of these would naturally emerge? You know, would it be kindness, or would it be gratitude, or would it be hope, or would it be forgiveness? Which of them would just seem like the right direction for you to go in? And I'd just choose one. Just go with one of them. And when we read in Ephesians, Paul writes about the way they learned Christ. He says, As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Anyone who feels judged by that passage, don't feel judged. The way I'm reading it really is, if you have a moment where just for a second you can put off some of that old rubbish, some of that historical baggage that bothers you, what could you put on in that moment? What what would you naturally lean towards in that moment? If you were to relax your comparison to other people, the conditions you've set up to be a success or lovable, your relentless self-criticism, what would you be left with? In other words, put it this way, If, in some of your darkness, you have a moment where there's a crack of light, what do you want to do with that moment? Sometimes people will say to me, I I have clients who who will say things like, but I can't believe the idea that I'm worthy. And I will say something like, what would it be like to believe that for a second? What would it be like just to hold that for a second and let it go because I understand that you can't believe it for any longer than that? In a sense, that's what I'm asking. What would it be like just to move towards forgiveness? or acceptance, or kindness, or gratitude, or hope, just for a second. Because a second in this game can make all the difference. So guys, you just want to tinkle away in the background just for a moment while I tell people what to do. Um, so just before, we're going to finish with some worship, but just before we get there, um, I'd like you've got some uh, pens and some uh, post-it notes on the table, just as we're about to head into worship. You might just want to look at what's on the screen there. And if there's one particularly now that appeals to you and you think, yeah, that's something I think I could maybe do this week or in the coming few weeks, just jot it down. Give you a couple of minutes to do that. And while you do that, I'm going to pray for you and then the worship guys will take it from there. Father, I want to thank you for this group of people. I want to thank you that even when things feel dark or heavy or difficult, that your light still shines. It may be behind the clouds, but it's still there. And Father, I do pray that there will be hope generated in this room. That whether it's in a moment alone, or when it's with other people, wherever it is, that there'll be times and places where people in this room just have moments of hope. Moments where light cracks through the clouds for a second. And I just ask that there'll be prayers prayed, that you will come, Father, and you'll show your faithfulness and in the weeks to come you'll answer them. That situations will change, that circumstances will move on. And for people in this room who've really been struggling, Father, it might have been hard for them to hear this call today, and I pray that you would lift off any condemnation or self-criticism that anyone could leave this room with. But Father, I pray that what they'll be left with is encouragement and goodness and a sense that there might be something more for them.